0: How are we doing this morning yeah thank you colin and madeline we're stoked for you guys it's awesome um will you guys give it up for the worship team this morning too they did a great job thank you guys two things before we dive in this morning we one we're going to be in matthew chapter 12 verses 22 through 32 this morning so if you have a bible with you why don't you open that up some of you may take you a little while to find it it's all right I'm going to give you five minutes. Uh, two things up front before we dive in. One, if you weren't at our family meeting last Sunday night, uh, we we've made the decision to move forward with purchasing the building at Seventh and Wallace, and pretty awesome. Uh, But there's five sort of uh, a checklist of five items that we need to fall into place in order to make that happen. And so as you guys are praying, we just kind of want to keep those in front of you guys so you know what to pray for. And you can see those things come into place or watch the Lord shut a door. And so those five things as of now, one was financing, which If you weren't at our family meeting, uh, you might not know that we were uh, approved for the financing through uh, a nonprofit organization that is helping us out. Um, Second, we're gonna have to have an inspection done on the building. Third, uh, we're gonna have to get a special use permit for the building. The city is requiring us to do that and that could take 45 to 60 days if we file tomorrow is the hope. So we file for it tomorrow, we get a public hearing in April And then uh, 10 days after the public hearing is when it becomes official and gets printed in the paper and we get the certificate. So uh, so financing, uh, special use permit, the, I'm already forgetting what I told you, inspection, there we go. And then we need to have an architectural review done to make sure we can fit everything in there. And then we need to get some bids from some contractors. So those are the five things we're kind of working on over the next 60 days and we will be keeping you guys in the loop as we move forward with that. But it's exciting. It's it's really awesome, actually. Um, second thing, how many of you have kids? Okay, awesome. Very fertile church. There's a lot of kids here. Uh, there's 110 to 120 kids back in the kids' wing uh, on Sunday mornings here. And I don't want to say it's chaos because your kids are okay, but it's chaos back there. Uh, if, and we need as much help as possible. And so if you are able and willing to hang with kids, even when you come to church and you don't want to hang with kids, you know, we need the people who are like, I want to go back there and serve. And uh, we need probably another 10 to 12 uh, people to help out and volunteer on Sundays. And at a minimum, we would just be looking for like one Sunday a month that you would be back there helping with kids. You don't even have to teach. You could just be somebody who works with one of the teachers to help keep order in the room, which would be awesome. So <laughs> uh, so we would, we would love that help. Becca would love that help. If you're interested in helping with kids, if you go to the contact table or the connect table after the service and let them know, then we'll make sure to get that to Becca and she'll follow up with you and get you signed up to help with that. So on that note. Matthew 12, if you guys would turn there with me. This morning's kind of an interesting passage uh, because it's a text that I think a lot of people, one passage in here in particular is a passage that a lot of people will take and kind of wrestle with for years and wonder if they've committed the 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 most horrid sin that has led them to a place of complete unforgiveness by God. And so we're going to get into that, And but one of the things I want to preface this with saying this morning is As I was studying this week, there were a couple things that I really felt like the Lord was putting on my heart. Uh, One being just, I think this is a good refresher course at what the gospel is. And I've particularly had some of you on my heart that have been in the church your whole life. You've seen it, been there, done that. Uh, And we have the potential of being around the church so much that we actually lose focus of what the gospel actually is. And so I want a refresher course on the gospel this morning. The other side of this is for those of you that have really wrestled with whether or not you would ever make a decision for Jesus, and some of you in this room may think Jesus is ridiculous altogether, and you got drug here this morning by somebody, but what I want you to know this morning is that I think the Lord sees you, and he knows you, and there's some of you here this morning that the Lord is drawing to himself, and so I want to pray as we get going this morning that the Lord would soften our hearts and would open our hearts up to just hear from him this morning, Amen. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, uh, Lord, that your spirit is the only one that can do the heavy lifting working in our hearts. And we invite you to come this morning to take even some of us who may have the most hardened of hearts, some of us who come here with just uh, in total disarray. Maybe we're angry, maybe we're frustrated, hurt, worried, whatever it is. Jesus, I pray that this morning you would settle. Our spirit, Lord, I pray that you would show up in this place in a real way, Lord, and we invite you to do the work that only you can do. I thank you, Jesus, that I'm not responsible for doing the heavy lifting of actually doing a transformative work in somebody's heart, and so I just allow you to do that. I humbly submit this time to you today and ask Jesus that you'd use your word to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Matthew 12, verse 22, if you guys would turn there, if you have a paper Bible, open it up. I want you guys to follow along. I'm going to be bouncing around a lot this morning, but we're going to camp out in these 10 verses this morning. Um, In this passage, uh, in in light of where we've been the last few weeks, we've been talking through Sabbath, we've been uh, seeing Jesus make these statements with regards to rest. We've been seeing the Pharisees coming at Jesus and opposing Jesus because Seemingly, they think that he's breaking the law. We talked last week about the fact that it wasn't that Jesus was breaking the law; it was that there were all these derivatives of the law that the Jews had put into place, and Jesus was actually pushing back against the derivatives, not the law in and of itself. But we see Jesus in this passage this morning, even responding to his angry, the angry religious leaders of the day, these Pharisees that we've been talking about for months. And now they're beginning to attack Jesus specifically in the area of these miracles that Jesus is going to be doing. And they're they're attacking the good works that Jesus is doing. But previously, we saw that Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees wanted to destroy him, we talked about this last week, Jesus doesn't respond in a way that's just like slapping them in the face or um, giving it right back to them. Jesus actually responds quite compassionately he doesn't respond harshly but he goes on even after this moment and he begins to heal he begins to help people and serve those that are in need and the religious leaders have been questioning Jesus's teachings of the law of the old testament these rules and these regulations and so now this passage we're in today we're going to see that they start to criticize Jesus specifically not just with the law, but now with regards to healing, like the deeds, the things Jesus is doing, his service to others. And so you'll recognize pretty difficultly that the end of this is kind of a difficult text. And so we're going to read it and then reread it and take some time to unpack this this morning. But I'm going to start at Matthew 12, verse 22. Are you guys with me? All right. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and he saw. And all these people were amazed, and Jesus said, and he said, uh, sorry, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But, the, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Anybody ever uh, wrestled with that passage before? Like, you've read through it and wondered, like, did I do the unforgivable sin have I committed it like where am I where do I stand before the Lord and so this morning I want to look at three major things that we see in this passage it's a pretty sequence uh, simple sequence that follows in here but some really difficult stuff jam-packed in there you see that Jesus heals for one um two you see the the opposition criticizing Jesus and then three you see Jesus's response and that's essentially what's happening so as you look through verses 22 to 24 I want, to, I want you to see this pattern in these verses particularly of like amazement and criticism that's all happening in this one text. Like after these religious leaders sort of challenged Jesus' beliefs with regards to the Sabbath uh, earlier in chapter 12, um, now they begin to challenge Jesus' deeds directly. So first they challenge his beliefs, now his deeds. He goes on healing, he goes on helping them, he goes on spending time with these broken people and broken places, and then these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they kind of just camp out nearby, sort of waiting to watch and see what Jesus is going to do, to sort of observe and see if they can catch Jesus in the act, doing something that they can pin against him. And so as you might imagine, the people around Jesus that are not the religious leaders The ones that aren't standing around trying to pin him for something are actually standing around in amazement and totally perplexed by what's taking place through the life of Jesus. I mean, imagine uh, this guy's going around, he's healing the sick, he's restoring sight to the blind, he's literally making the lame walk, he's casting demons out of people. Wouldn't this be an amazing sight to see? I mean, put yourself in their shoes to actually witness what's taking place. It says in verse 23, and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? That's their response. And this phrase, son of David, may sound a little bit familiar to us because if you go back to the beginning of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, back to chapter one, verse one, it starts with this phrase. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so you look at this phrase, son of David, And some of us might look at it and be like, what's so significant about this one phrase? Why are the people responding to this one phrase in utter amazement and being perplexed by it? But this phrase is referring back to, again, chapter 1, verse 1, and then now we see it again in 12.23. And it's basically, this phrase, son of David, is like personifying the Messiah, it's calling out that Jesus is the Messiah or, or that he's he's this chosen one. And really that's what Christ is even translated as. Like for some of you that thought Christ was his last name and it's like Jesus Christ, uh, it's not his last name. His name was Jesus. And then Christ was affixed to that because Christ was actually who he was, what he would do. He was the Messiah. He was the one that would come and save all mankind's sins. And so That's what Christ is translated as. He he wasn't born as Jesus Christ, he was Jesus. And then the Christ was added to signify the reality that he actually was the Messiah. Matthew keeps coming back to this point over and over again. And so in the beginning of Matthew, it gives Jesus his genealogy. And so for all of you wondering why the book of Matthew starts out with this massive genealogy that maybe most of you have read and you kind of brush through because it's just boring and it's a list of names its purpose was to actually explain how Jesus came from the line of David, how he came from the line of Abraham. It was to point back to Old Testament prophecy. And so what this little phrase does, I mean, you might not think this is really amazing, but what's so awesome about it is it connects Jesus to the Old Testament. This is the connection. He's the Messiah. It doesn't take away from the Old Testament what the Old Testament says. It actually adds credibility to the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament because this means that what the Old Testament promised was actually coming to fruition in the person and in the ministry of Jesus Christ. One commentator said this, by connecting Jesus with David, Matthew, the writer here, asserts that the Davidic covenant reaches its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is becoming the fulfillment of the promises that were made years and years before. And here's the deal, though, that this claim actually comes with a lot of baggage and difficulty for the people that are hearing this being stated. Obviously, if you know anything about David, you know that David was thought of as he was a warrior. He was the liberator of the people, this King David, this mighty man. And it's probably hard for them to recognize Jesus as this like in light of David, because here Jesus comes on the scene. They're calling him the, the the son of David, but he's poor. He's sort of homeless. He's this meek person. They're expecting this Davidic-like person to come onto the scene, this warrior that's going to like literally kick their enemies' tails and take them by storm and save the world. And what they get is Jesus. And he comes in a lowly form and in a humble fashion, but he is the son of David. And so, Uh, Another commentator said, the response of the people is crystallized in a question. Can this actually be the son of David? The question is worded in such a way as to indicate a measure of perplexity, but also to open the door to an interesting possibility. Jesus was so unlike what they expected in the Messiah, but could he yet really be the son of David? And so they responded with amazement. Like they're perplexed, they don't get it. Like, is this the one? Is this the one we've met? Because the things he's doing would seem as though this is him, but there's things about him that don't line up with who we thought were actually coming. But the Greek word there for this word amazement literally means to become astonished to the, to the degree is to nearly lose your mental composure. And so the the people can't comprehend what they're seeing with their own eyes. I mean, he's healing people. He's speaking about the law. They know the law. They've heard about this God. They've heard about this awaited one, this Messiah that was coming. They've heard about the son of Abraham and the son of David, and, and they're so perplexed. It was like a bunch for them to take in. So they're amazed. They're literally astonished. And then these Pharisees begin to chime in. And we see the Pharisees, these religious leaders, criticism in verse 24, it says, but when the Pharisees heard it, what'd they say? They said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This, this name, Beelzebul, is actually, he was a, um, a, a God, uh, a Philistine God, that uh, when it's used in the New Testament, this name actually refers to Satan. And basically, when the Pharisees say this, that it's only by Satan, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, it's like shots fired at the Holy Spirit, because it's not the Spirit of God that's actually doing this. They're accusing, saying in front of the people that are amazed and astonished at what Jesus is doing, hey, uh, you know, basically don't listen to him, because he's casting out demons by the prince of demons himself. It's Satan that's doing this work through this man. They're discrediting the work of Jesus. And so these religious leaders are really quick to jump in and to accuse Jesus of doing good works and miracles with a power that only comes from demons. And so now obviously they're saying this because they continue to try to undermine the ministry of Jesus. But it's this strange claim, right? To, to, to accuse the Son of God of being demonic. And so we have to recognize this strange and serious situation that these people find themselves in. But I also think that it's interesting to recognize how this pattern actually plays out in life and in scripture. Because God acts, God moves, He moves in the world. And immediately when God acts and God moves somewhere, the objective of Satan is to come in and to bring doubt and to bring disbelief in God's goodness and in God's sovereignty. That's what Satan does. It's always the pattern in scripture. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the first thing that the serpent says to Eve is what? Did God actually say that? Instilling doubt, instilling disbelief. Did God actually say that? That's Satan's first words. And Satan is always questioning, always causing doubt and disbelief. And then the serpent goes on to question God's intentions for Adam and Eve. And he says, God knows when you partake of the fruit, you will be just like him. You will be like God yourself. Like, how deceptive. And it's so important for us to recognize this, that God does act, that God does move in the world today, that God has spoken through his word, through scripture, through, through the Bible. And then when he speaks, when he moves, when God acts, it demands a response. Like we, we, have, we all have to respond to the words that God has actually spoken. Like your life is giving some sort of a response today, just like the serpent responds in Genesis Genesis 3, just like the Pharisees respond in Matthew 12. My question for you this morning is, what is your response to hearing the truth? Let's see what Jesus' response is. He goes on, verses 25 to 32. It says, knowing their thoughts, knowing their thoughts, he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And so Jesus sort of responds seriously, he responds swiftly, and Jesus is objecting to these religious leaders' view that his power comes from demons. And, And he says if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. Like Jesus is essentially telling them, your argument actually makes no sense. If I'm being influenced by demons, then why would I be casting demons out, is what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make sense. And then there's this controversial statement that comes at the end with regards to blaspheming the Holy Spirit and it being unforgivable. And so the question is, um, is Jesus actually saying here that there's an unforgivable unforgivable sin that people can commit? And the question after that is, how does that measure up with the rest of what is written in the Bible, which is where I want to spend some time on today? For some of you, maybe this is a refresher. But in other passages in the Bible, particularly 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's my challenge. How many of you grew up in the church? Okay. The passages I'm about to read, you've heard. And I literally want you to just sit here this morning, and I want you to re-hear them with your heart open to actually hear these passages, and the depth, the weight of what Jesus did for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you see this theme in 1 John, and it's consistent Throughout all of Scripture, the Bible talks a ton about forgiveness of sin in a general sense, but not necessarily that certain sins can be forgiven and that other sins cannot. And so what's happening here? Jesus seems to be saying that blaspheming or speaking against or irreverently towards the Spirit is something that can't be forgiven. And so real quick— I want to do a quick recap of how we're saved because I think we need to back up a little bit. I want to look at some passages so that we can be reminded of what it actually means to be saved. How does our relationship with God be made right? Because we know there's brokenness in the world. We we, we see it all throughout the world. How do we reconcile the brokenness that we see in people and in the world? Like the, the reality is we as humans have rebelled against God, but how does our relationship with God be made right? How does that get united again? How does that get reconciled? And Paul says this in Romans 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he says, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes, and it says, and is justified, means is declared not guilty. It means, it, 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 the, this word justified uh, means declared not guilty. And with the mouth, it says, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, meaning they won't be rejected, you won't be discarded. And then he goes on to say, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So here's my quick story. I grew up in the church, youth group every week, church on Sundays when I wasn't snowboarding, did the the game, 17 years old, I'm with my dad at a conference, I hear this guy read this passage, 60,000 men in in this stadium, I'm up at the very top, I, I hear him read this passage, for some reason at 17 years old, though I was immersed in the church, had heard it over and over again, Knew it. I would tell you I was a Christian. I would tell you, like, I got it. I understood what it meant to be saved. For some reason, at that moment, from that dude's mouth when he read that passage, I went, Oh my gosh. Like, I actually understand what this means. Like, there was a chasm between me and the Lord. God sent his son to break that chasm down, to reconcile me with him. And amongst 60,000 people at the top of the stadium, I'm like running down to the front of the stadium like, I want to give my life to Jesus. You know, it was like so unlike me, but I knew at that point that it was real. Like I've never looked back since that day. My mom would tell you I prayed the prayer at six and I was, you know, always called myself a Christian and I did all the Christian things and went through the, 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 I, I did, I went through the cycle, did the things. But at that point, at 17 years old, I'm, I'm reading this, I'm hearing this, and I'm like, I, I actually want to be saved. I recognized the chasm. I recognized that, that, that within me, like, I was born with a hatred towards God, and that needed to be fixed. And, and the whole Greek and Jew thing, which is so cool at, this end, at the end of this passage, where Paul says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all— This whole Greek and Jew thing means that God isn't just for some people. God isn't just for some races. God isn't just for people that know the Jewish law and grew up in tradition and can recite the stuff, but that everybody can come to know God. And so that's what Paul says in Romans 10. Basically what Paul's saying, we believe in Jesus. We believe that he's God. We want to turn from our ways. We want to submit our lives to Christ, the Messiah, and what that equates to or what that equals to is salvation, unity with God. Like our relationship with God becomes reconciled. And so what role, this is my question that I'm getting at, what role does the Holy Spirit play in that process? Is it just you raising your hand to say, I want to get saved? Is it just you acknowledging your need for Jesus? Is that, is that it? Because this is what Jesus is getting at when he talks about blaspheming the Spirit. You look in Titus chapter three, verse five, it says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, basically saying not because you've earned it in some way, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration, which is a big theological word that means salvation, to be unified with God. And he ends with this, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so there's something in here that's consistent with all of Scripture as well, that the Holy Spirit renews, that the Holy Spirit makes us alive, that the Holy Spirit breathes life. At 17 years old, Chris is sitting in a stadium. Something happens when the word is spoken, and it's like the Spirit upon me saying, I believe and I want to trust my life in Jesus' hands. The Spirit breathes life into Chris. And at that moment, I'm like, I'm a new creation. Like, I never got it before. I got it, it clicked. Paul says in in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We once loved ourselves, but because of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in us, now we get to love God. And do you see what's happening? Like, once we thought it was ridiculous to serve God, to know God, Now we think it's great. What happened? The Spirit actually made the truth of God alive in us. We once called Jesus foolish because of the Holy Spirit's work. And now we all of a sudden see God is beautiful. He renews us. So what this means is that apart from the Holy Spirit working in your heart, you cannot see the good news of God. The Spirit is the one who does that work. And the Bible says that we're in a desperate situation, that we need God's intervention, and that we cannot, absolutely cannot fix ourselves. That we are in need of the mercy of God, as Paul says, because we've willingly chose to rebel against God, which leads to pain, it leads to suffering, it leads to loss, And because of this, Jesus actually worked to make us right before God, and it's the Spirit that awakens that beauty of the gospel, the good news that we talk about in us. So wrapping all that up, what does Jesus mean when Jesus says in verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven? What is Jesus saying? Remember the context of the passage. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, He's blind, he's deaf. What happens first? The Pharisees accuse Jesus of being filled with the power that comes from demons. And then Jesus responds. So what are the Pharisees really doing here? When when you read through the Gospel of Luke, it's really, I challenge you guys, go home this week, read this story through the Gospel of, of Luke and see how often Luke mentions some amazing things. He always refers to what Jesus is doing as Through the empowerment of the Spirit. Like, go through Luke and write down every time Luke says, empowered by the Spirit, Jesus, da, 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 da. Like, it's over and over and over again, this reference to being empowered by the Spirit to do the work that He's doing. What does that mean for you and I? That apart from being empowered by the Spirit, what is the stuff that we're doing? Paul says, our righteousness is filthy rags. So, what are we doing? Because the, the reality for me is that I don't want to play games. Anybody here want to play games? Like, I don't, I don't want to play church. I don't want to play Christian. I think I did that for 17 years of my life. I think it produced no fruit. I think at 17, when the Holy Spirit breathed life into me, I was like, oh, dang. This is something real and not something I'm just playing with. This is something legitimate with substance and not just something I act like. And we all know that Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, was fully God, that he was fully man. And and while Jesus is doing his ministry here on this earth, the Spirit of God is literally empowering Jesus to do his ministry. And this might not seem cool to you, but mind-blowing to me, that the same Spirit that is moving in Jesus to lead him to do these things is the same Spirit that he imparts into us. That's just craziness. So, To kind of wrap all this up so that we can respond, these religious leaders are calling the Spirit of God's work as demonic. And so, essentially, Jesus is making this point. He's saying, when you call evil good, and when you call good evil, there's no way that you can be forgiven. When you believe that light is darkness, and you believe that darkness is light, there's no way to be forgiven. When you call the Holy Spirit, the one who actually empowers us, the one who makes us see, the one who brings the new life, and when you call the Holy Spirit demonic, there's no way to be forgiven. You're separated from God. And so, what point can we take from this? And the application that I want us to consider is to ask ourselves this question What do you call good in your life? What do you call good? What do you call evil? What do you believe? What do you call as being good? Because sometimes, unfortunately, the people who grow up around church are the farthest from the gospel because there's so much that we just assume. There's so much that we just ignore about God because we've heard it and seen it and thought we've experienced it and we just become jaded people. And see, Jesus says something else that's really interesting in verse 30. He says what? Whoever is not with me is what? Against me whoever does not gather with me does what scatters another theme throughout scripture like when we're in sin we isolate from god we scatter we run from him we we become radically individualistic it becomes all about us and so what does it look like then to gather near to jesus to draw closer to him rather than than to scatter from him And John is quite clear about what it means to gather near to God. He says in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen to that. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So you will know if somebody is true by the simple reality. What do they believe about Jesus? And if you were asked that question today, what would you say? What do you believe about him? Because a hundred years ago, philosophers thought that religion was going to die. And it didn't happen. And actually, we live in a day and age right now in this world that is way more spiritual than we even understand. They say in the last three years, the world has become progressively more spiritual. When I say spiritual, I don't mean Christian. I mean, they become spiritual. And the issue really isn't our spirituality. The issue is, what do we think about Jesus? That's the question. So here's what Jesus is saying. No sin is unforgivable. But we have to pray that our hearts, please hear me this morning, that your hearts do not become hardened like the religious leaders who called the Holy Spirit demonic. Guard your hearts from that. You think the enemy's not working hard to convince you of doubt and disbelief and lead you to a place where you would basically deny Christ. And when we're in this kind of dark place, there's no hope for our soul because the Holy Spirit is the only thing, like I said, that can awaken us to God. So if we call the Holy Spirit demonic, essentially we're in the dark. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we hoping in? What are we allowing in our thoughts, in our hearts? What are we allowing in our lives? We, we say that we believe and we live as if we don't because we have to ask ourselves, what actually determines for us what is true? What is truth? Because we're asked all the time by people in our lives and and by this culture, like, should I do this or should I do that? People are asking you this. You're asking other people this. And and we we say things like, well, I feel like. Or maybe, you know, and the reality is that the truth is, is that God speaks through his word. God speaks through the Bible, and the Bible says very specifically certain ways in which we're to live our lives that bring honor and glory to him, ultimately that bring joy and peace to you and I. And so we don't get to determine for ourselves what's good and what's holy and what's true. That's actually God's job to do, and he's actually already done it and defined it for us. And it all rests in and is determined by our view of Jesus. John says true spirituality is when we believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that the only way to God is actually through Jesus Christ. And so when we deny that, John's pretty bold and he says that that's completely anti-God. Like essentially it's false and that's how you determine true from false. I want to encourage you this morning because we, we gather as a church family every single week. And we'll talk about community groups, we'll talk about relationships, how much we value community and connection with others. I will tell you this. In the last 20, I'm trying to count down, I'm 42, go back to 17. Somebody help me with that. 25 years? 25 years of my life. Do you want to know what's got me through some of the most difficult things I've ever been through? People that God placed with me that kept pointing me back to his word. Like there's something crazy about it. When you go to somebody and you're like, hey, you know, I'm really struggling. Could you help me with this? And they're like, well, I feel like, you know, you should blah, 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 blah. It's like, no. Give me the refresher course and take me back to the gospel. Literally, take me back to when I was 17 because at that point it rocked me so much I was willing to run down from the top floor of a stadium with 60,000 men down to the stage to just say, Jesus, I want all of you. I want it all. And you come to, you go through hell and high water in your life. And the reason we talk about community and relationship is because we really do believe that it is the soil that discipleship happens in. So you want to be disciples, you surround yourself with people that love Jesus and know His Word, and through hell and high water are going to constantly point you back to His Word and preach truth at you and point you back to what you know, what you can stand on, what's firm, what's not going to move with the culture, what's not going to blow with this wind and that wind of doctrine. What's It's not gonna move when some false teacher comes in and says this or says that or a false prophet says this or that because you go back to the word. But church, why do we find ourselves like vacillating, moving around, looking for self-help from this person or that thing or this book or that movie or this documentary, that like wherever I can go to get help, I'm gonna get it. And I'm not saying No books and no movies are helpful, but I'm saying when our theological framework has been defined by books and movies and not by the word of God itself, we have an issue. We wonder why the church has been impacted so strongly in the last year through a little thing like COVID. Like honestly, I know that's a big thing, but there's bigger things coming. And if it has had the impact that it has on so many souls in the last year that we're willing to just like, remove themselves relationally from others to a point where now people are actually suffering and they're having a hard time. Depression is at an all-time high. Like, anxiety is at an all-time high. The, the, the jobless rate, like, go down the list of things that people are going through, and it's like, where were we? And are we gonna point people back to truth, or are we gonna just tell them, like, to go find the next self-help thing that will make them feel better for the time being until they actually hit the same rut again, and they're faced with the decision of like, am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to believe him for who he is or not? And this whole section, this whole passage was like Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah, and the work that I'm doing is actually ordained by the Spirit, and for you and I as followers of Jesus, we know on the other side of all of this that is written, that the Spirit comes and God empowers the church people with his spirit so you can be able to walk in righteousness as followers of Jesus, make clear, educated decisions in your life based on the word as the spirit leads, not being led this way and that. So my hope for you this morning and for myself is honestly that we don't call good evil, that we don't call evil good, but rather that we are a people we're humbled by God's truth that we look to Jesus for our hope, that because that's the only place where hope can be found. You can look for it everywhere else; it's only found in Jesus. And so I want to pray for you this morning. If you guys would stand with me, um, there's two people that I want to pray for—not actually two people, two categories of people. I'm going to categorize all of you this morning. You like that? Um, there's a lot of you in this room that grew up in the church. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm saying I feel like you run the risk of becoming so used to Jesus, so used to certain passages in the Bible that they've lost all significance in your heart. So maybe this morning God is like rejuvenating something in you. Maybe you, like me, at 17, or reading something or hearing something, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I actually want to get serious about this. And for some of you in this room, the other category is those of you who don't know Jesus. A friend drug you here this morning. You were curious, and you came here this morning, whatever it is, and you need to know this morning there's this God that, that loves you crazily that sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins, not just so you can be a Christian and go to church and do the American thing, but so that you can be reconciled and made righteous before God himself. That his grace abounds in your life, that he's extending mercy. And if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, I'm inviting you. Just like that passage says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. I really do believe it's that easy. And you know what's going on in your heart this morning. You know how the Spirit is speaking to you this morning. You know what He's calling out in you this morning and how He's moving in your life. What does it look like for you to respond this morning? Because God's Word demands a response, you guys. Like we talk about this in sermon group all the time. If, if I just come up here and just read the Bible, step off stage and then you guys go on with your merry way and nothing ever moved us. There was no response to his word. Then what are we playing this game for? So my prayer is that his word is resonating in your heart, that his spirit is at work in you right now and you know what he's doing and he knows where you're at. Let's humbly present our lives to him and surrender. Would you pray with me? Why don't you bow your heads? I first just wanna pray for those in this room. Maybe you've never responded to Jesus before in your life. And maybe this morning, you know you need it. And for the first time in your life, you're just like, I can't deny it. Like, I, I think I need to take this step and actually surrender my life to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you want to know and to follow Jesus, would you raise your hand? I know that's a bold move, but I want to pray for you this morning if you're here. Thanks. The other group of you, and you can be radically honest, been around the church, you've heard it, done that dance and you just find yourself at a place of just complacency I want to pray for you this morning because I believe that his spirit hasn't left, it hasn't departed I believe that he wants to rejuvenate something in you and if that's you this morning would you raise your hand Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's pray, Jesus, I thank you so much for the boldness of the people that raise their hands this morning. And I know there's probably others who um, have their hearts lifted to you this morning. And I pray, Jesus, in your name that you'd meet them in this place as they call upon you. Would you save them, Lord? Would you come in and would you do a transformative work that only you can do in them as they call upon Jesus as their Lord and Savior, their Messiah, the only one that can save them? And I pray for those, Lord, who grew up in and around the church that maybe just feel complacent, maybe they just kind of feel a little blah, God, maybe the impact of the last year or certain circumstances in their life as of late has just led their heart to feeling battered and bruised and tired and not sure what they believe and why they believe it. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would intercede, that your spirit would come in a mighty way like a rushing wind would you blow through this place and would you impact, transform, change the hearts and the lives of your people. We are yours, Jesus. This is your church. And so I just surrender it all to you, Jesus, my own heart, and say, Jesus, have your way with us. Do what you need to do, Jesus. Would your kingdom come and your will be done? Would your spirit move on this earth like no other time before? I pray that we would leave here with these stories of, wow, God's moving so much that we literally stand in amazement as we're watching what God is doing in people's lives. I wanna be a part of that, Jesus, and I ask you to just pour your spirit out and do the work that you need to do, and for us to be a people that would not get in the way, that would not build walls, that would not prevent you from moving, but would be a people that humbly surrender ourselves to you and say, Jesus, have your way with us. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this day that you've granted us, for the air in our lungs, these eyes to see, these ears to hear, these hands, these feet. God, you have truly and richly blessed us. And I pray we leave here today with just a sense of gratitude for the work that you've done in us, through us, for us, God. And I pray that you continue to move radically through your church in Jesus' name, amen.